Although, I've seen some scripts I know the words weren't spelled right. There was hardly any commas in it at all. So I don't think that's too important. Hey, you want to get on the train here, or you want to ruin another take, huh? It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. Man, I don't drop character till I've done a DVD commentary. You want to eat the writer? Be my guest. That will leave you to explain how else your character is supposed to get to Bremen. Welcome back to another episode of the In the Mouth of Dorkness Chatcast. I'm your host, Brad Gullickson, the Mouth Dork, and joining me today is... Lisa Gullickson, the Wife Dork. Yeah, and last week we ventured off to the Alamo Drafthouse in Winchester, Virginia to partake in Lost Weekend 11, their biannual film festival that we've been going to since Lost Weekend 3, and we've been sponsoring since Lost Weekend 4. This year, Andy brought out all the stops, multiple celebrity guests, and because Andy Garrison, the programmer of Lost Weekend, is so cool to ITMOD, he set us up with several really great conversations that we're going to share with you over the course of the next three weeks. First up, it's a big one. It's a real doozy. We're talking to writer, director, producer, star, Emilio Estevez. Can you believe it? Emilio Estevez on the It Mod Chatcast? Uh, no, Lisa, I cannot believe it. How did our listeners get so lucky? How did we get so lucky? <laughs> oh, yeah, Andy, Andy. <laughs> That dude is awesome. So thank you, Andy. And if you haven't gone over to our other channel, the regular main show, It Modcast, go there now. We had two extra-long debrief sessions with Andy and several Lost Weekend attendees at the Green Turtle Restaurant where we did a debrief of all the films that we saw that weekend. Uh, we had the option of watching 43 movies. Yeah, our first Lost Weekend had, like, what, like 21? Uh, I think our first, the our first Lost Weekend, Lost Weekend 3, I think had 18. Oh, my goodness. And now... Lost Weekend has two tracks. You're bouncing from theater to theater. You're uh, debriefing quickly in between each film. What did you see? What did you see? It was madness. Yeah, it was really intense this year, uh, but in the best way possible. It's becoming a full-blown film festival. And it's attracting people like Emilio Estevez to the theater to talk to the Winchester crowd. Um, and yeah, giving us this opp opportunity for this conversation. Now, the movie he's promoting is The Public, which he, like I said, wrote, directed, produced, and starred in. Lisa, what is The Public? Why should we be excited about this movie? The Public is the story about Emilio Estevez plays a librarian, and he's been working at the same library in Cincinnati for years, and he's really gotten to know the people who frequent this library, and many of them are homeless people, because there's not a lot of places that just open their doors to allow homeless people to just be. Right, and this is not a unique uh, situation for Cincinnati. I don't know if you've gone to the library recently, but here in D.C., uh, out in the suburbs, homeless shelters uh, are basically libraries. Libra or reverse that. Libraries <laughs> are basically homeless shelters now. Yeah, in fact... In our public library, our public library is literally right next door to the homeless shelter. Now, for this library in Cincinnati, it's been a freakishly cold winter, and at night, the shelters have been filling up. So not everybody is making it in time, and 
homeless people are literally freezing, dying of exposure on the streets right outside the public library. So one night, one of the homeless people, played by Michael K. Williamson, goes up to Emilio Estevez and says, we're just going to stay here for the night, and you're either with us or against us. And it just becomes this act of civil disobedience of keeping the homeless people off of the street using public resources so that they can survive. Right, and what uh, Emilio does is he incorporates not just the point of view of the homeless, not just the point of view of this one librarian. He brings in the points of view of the institution. He brings in the points of view of the media covering this story. He brings in the points of view of the politicians and the police trying to end this hostage situation as they see it. So yeah, uh, Emilio Estevez is doing a lot with this movie. He has a lot to say, and it's clear through this conversation that we have with him that he is very passionate about his subject matter. And I think in this interview, he goes into some of his inspirations for why he has taken this turn in his career towards activism through his art that I find really interesting. Now, the film comes out on April 5th, this Friday. Uh, it will be returning to the Alamo Drafthouse in Winchester for a week of screenings, but it'll also be on demand and VOD. We definitely recommend the movie, although I gotta say, you don't have to have seen the film to appreciate this conversation. We don't spoil anything. In fact, Emilio goes out of his way not to spoil the public. Uh, so, you know, for the sensitive folks out there, don't worry, you can enjoy this conversation without watching the movie. Um, but yeah, again, watch the movie because we really liked it. And it wouldn't be an extra special episode of the It Mod Chat cast if we didn't have just one more dork for this interview. So joining us on this interview is also Billy Das, the indie dork. Yeah. Beloved. We love that guy. Yep. But not as much as we love Emilio Estevez. True. So let's get on with it. <laughs> And we are back in our favorite Alamo Draft House, in our favorite projection booth, and we are honored and thrilled to have Emilio Estevez joining us today. Thank you, sir. Thank you, man. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, in this room with you. Well, this room. This it room. A beautiful room. <laughs> it's a great room, surrounded by all these lovely posters. Yes, indeed. Um, I was just thinking about your films of late, uh, what you've been choosing to direct, mm -hmm. Bobby, uh, The Way, The Public. They, on the surface, seem fairly eclectic, but I feel like there's a, a conscious there, a social desire to explore. That's right. What's, what's, what are you, how are you picking your films? Well, so about 20 years ago, I, I kind of made a left turn. I stopped making movies for other people, and I started making movies for myself. And that came with um, agreeing to do the third installment of The Mighty Ducks uh, for free. In exchange for that, uh, Disney agreed to fund uh, The War at Home, which is mm. a film I shot in Austin, Texas in 1995. Mm. Good Lord. <laughs> uh, so uh, it, it was an independent film. It, it uh, co-starred Kathy Bates, uh, my father, Martin Sheen, Kimberly Williams. It was basically a four-hander. And uh, it, I was playing a veteran uh, suffering from PTSD, uh, you know, obviously before we got into the conflicts in the Middle East. Uh, so it was a little bit ahead of its time, uh, and yet it was kind of laid on the heels of all the other Vietnam pictures that had come and gone. So uh, it got zero traction, and it ended up playing in about four theaters, <laughs> two in L.A. and two in New York, and that was it. Uh, and I was um, 
I, I was upset, obviously. Sure. Uh, I felt that the studio, which I'd made a lot of money for, didn't really support the film. And I almost quit the business at that point. I was like, I'm done. Uh, but there were other stories that I needed to tell. There were other um, things floating around my head that I started just sitting down and putting pen to paper and, and doing some research on. And then Bobby came out of that. Uh, and then The Way. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, of course, the public. And these were movies that are that are about people at their core. These are films that are that celebrate our humanity. Uh, these are movies that uh, that address the intersectionality of all of the issues of our time. Uh, and the public, in particular, you know, when you think about the, the the climate crisis and you think about the opioid epidemic and hopelessness and and mental health issues, uh, the, the dismantling of our civil and our, and our constitutional rights, all of that intersects under the roof of your local public library. So I, I feel like the other movies have been sort of uh, a, a, a proving ground for me mm-hmm. uh, and, and sort of a, an audition to get to where I am now with this film. So how long has the public been? 12 years. 12 years. 12 years to get to where we are sitting right now. Well, congratulations. Uh, Thank you. Uh, This started April 1st in uh, 2007, and I was looking for a follow-up movie to Bobby. Uh, I wanted to do another independent film with a large ensemble cast set in one location, uh, and and so I, I stumbled onto this newspaper article that was printed in the LA Times called Written Off. It was by a, um, a Salt Lake City retiring librarian named Chip Ward. And, and the thesis of the piece was how libraries have become de facto homeless shelters and how librarians have become first responders and social workers de facto. And so I was really moved by it. And, and I had done the bulk of my research for Bobby at the downtown LAPL, this, the, this uh, downtown uh, central library, mm-hmm. which is enormous and gorgeous. If you haven't been there, it's just, it's a real I was impressed architectural by it. marvel, right? Yeah. It's pretty, it's, it's pretty overwhelming. So, um, so I went back to the library. And I wanted to see how accurate this was. Uh, was this, you know, Chip's contention was that this was not just isolated to Salt Lake City, that this was epidemic. Sure enough, LAPL suffering from the same, same issues. So I began to imagine what it would look like if the patrons staged a sit-in, an old-fashioned 1960s type sit-in, how would law enforcement react? How would the media spin it? And how would politicians ultimately use it for their own personal gain Mm -hmm. uh, in the middle of an an election year? And that's when it began. So that was was the summer of 2007 that I began to write this in earnest. Uh, The the financial crisis hit 2008. Mm. Uh, I was well on my way to, to making the film that year, but we lost our funding. And I'm grateful, actually. Now, in retrospect, the time, I was like, Christ, you know, really? You know, this, but uh, but I had uh, another decade to really marinate in it and get it right. And to that end, uh, when we first screened this at the ALA convention, American Library Association convention in New Orleans last June, we screened it for thousands of librarians down there uh, on, on three, uh, three separate screenings. But the first one was the most nerve-wracking because, of course, I'm I'm in the deep end of the pool, and if we <laughs> if we crapped out with librarians, the movie would have no credibility. The first question was from a librarian who stood up, said, "How did you get us so right?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Well, you're talking to three former booksellers. We yeah. all we all met okay. at a Barnes and Noble in Reston, Virginia. That okay. was actually Caddy Corner to a homeless shelter, which I'll was right done. next door to um, our public library, the Reston Public Library. And okay. we can tell you, yes, you got it right. I mean, it is an issue, and you know when we had to lock up every night. Um, you had to kick people out, and you had to kick them out in winter, and right. it's brutal. Yeah. And it's it's an incredibly painful experience. But this movie gets you thinking about, like, how many resources we just let be dormant. That's right. Like, instead of going, well, how can we take what we have and take it even further? Just out of the fear of going, like, well, people need this too badly. Right. There have been several libraries. There's one uh, in uh, Nova Scotia, so leave it to the Canadians yeah. <laughs> to, take, to take the lead on this. Uh, but they have opened up their libraries at night uh, in, in during particularly cold uh, conditions to allow them to, to stay over. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a lot of pushback in this country about that. That these, you know, these, uh, these private, these public spaces belong to all of us, and it can't just be yet another homeless shelter. But well, well, it is. Mm-hmm. It is. A, it is that. It's too it late. Is, it is. Yeah. Uh, it, it has happened, and yet we also have to remember that the services that libraries provide are extraordinary. I mean, I got my passport renewed at the library in Cincinnati last year. Uh, we have an extraordinary makerspace where there's 3D yeah. printing, and there's a green screen for uh, young aspiring filmmakers. There's a recording studio uh, for those who have an idea they want to lay down a track. Uh, there are um, uh, you can get your book printed there. Uh, you can learn how to knit. You can make uh, campaign buttons. Mm-hmm. And so all of that stuff is is available for free at your local public library. And uh, and we forget that those services are critical to a thriving community. Um, the, the author Anne Lamott uh, says uh, uh, libraries... Uh, communities without libraries are like radios without batteries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is absolutely true. And there's a new book now by Eric Kleinenberg uh, called Palaces for the People, and he talks about how libraries are the are the cornerstone of what he's coined the social infrastructure and how critical that social infrastructure is. Sure. Uh, how... So I, I agree very much. I mean, that's libraries are one of the best resources that we have today. And, and in terms of improving communities, that's right. they're huge. And librarians were the first Google. <laughs> Damn yeah. straight. Yeah, they were. Damn straight. And which you perfectly summed up in your film with all those questions. Yeah, right, yeah. Which is all yeah, real Totally related yeah. to oh, oh, are they all? Oh, yeah. Are they all? <laughs> so the librarians that I spend time with, I'd say, give me the top ten most ridiculous <laughs> questions. And they did. And then you could also glean them off off of the internet. Sure, sure. Well, we've heard those questions. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Sure. <laughs> Best-selling book, It's Blue. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? But even the last question in the film, I'm looking for a miracle, can you help me find one? That's a real question. Mm. I didn't make any of that up. Mm. Oh, that's awesome. Well, so that's that's the, that's a good segue then to the question that I was going to ask, which was how, how do we... How do we Telling movies allows us to connect. I mean, they're empathy machines, right? That's that's that's, that's right. how we call them. But how do we make people listen? How do we make people well, see I, I that there is? I believe there is no separation between the artists and the activists, and there never has been. They are one and the same. Uh, and and it's through over the centuries, it has been the artists that have been the greatest uh, of forces that push back against the 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 fascists that have been in play. Uh, when you talk about, and, and again, you've seen the movie, you know how it ends. Uh, the film is a celebration of nonviolent civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. It is what, uh, uh, it's also an example of what Reinhold Lieber called the sublime madness. So after the burning of the Reichstag, he basically said, there, <laughs> we have to stand up to this insanity. We may not survive it, but if we don't do something, 
we will all we will all perish anyway. Mm-hmm. So so this idea of the sublime madness is embodied in the act at the end of the movie. I don't want to spoil it, but for your listeners, but um, but Jean Paul Sartre mm-hmm. actually put it more broadly when he says, "I do not fight fascism because I think or fascists because I think I will win. I fight fascists because they are fascists," and that is also embodied uh, in the end of this movie because again. Our patrons are, they know that they're facing down, potentially getting their heads opened up, and yet they cannot not do what they do. Do you personally feel compelled as an artist, called, I guess, morally required to preach the things that matter to you when you make your movies? Is that? Well, I, I, I want to be careful that I don't preach, yeah. and I also want to be careful that I stay in my lane, because I'm not a librarian. Mm-hmm. I'm also not an LCSW. I don't run a homeless shelter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have lived experience. So I, my approach to this is as an artist first. So uh, I want to make sure that I lean into those who do that public service for mm-hmm. a living and that I don't speak out of my ass, right? <laughs> Which oftentimes happens with sure. actors who go out and talk about things that they are not sure, yeah. qualified to talk about. I have done my research. I, I, I am deep in this, but again, I'm, I'm an artist first. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I want to make sure I do stay in my lane. Storyteller. But to yeah. go back to that idea, when you're formulating this film, you wanted single room, lots of actors, lots of characters. That's right. You could have told the story strictly from Stewart's point of view. You right. know, you didn't need to bring in the media. You didn't need to bring in the police, the mayor, all that. So, one, what was your reason to do it that in such a fashion? And then how do you make sure that you're portraying them justly? Right. So... That's a good question. Uh, I, I love ensemble uh, uh, films. So when you look back over the... I've been doing this now for 35 years. The films that I've, that I've scored in... And again, if you just sort of take this as empirical evidence, uh, The Outsiders, uh, 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 Breakfast Club, St. Elmo's Fire, Young Guns, even Mighty Ducks to, to a lesser extent, were all ensemble-driven mm-hmm. films. And so I sort of looked at it from the perspective of what's a good business model for this movie... Um, how can I fit into... Again, I haven't been in a, a movie of this caliber in really 20 years. Mm-hmm. So so as a re-entry vehicle, as an actor, how how is the public going to look at this? If it's, if it's only from Stuart's perspective, that's a vanity project, and I don't think anybody would be interested. If it is... If, it is, if, we, if I come into this from the perspective of this is an ensemble movie, we're telling a lot of different stories, it's not just him... Uh, it, it, we're dealing from we're, we're dealing it from uh, from the media's perspective, from the uh, law enforcement's perspective, and also from the the political aspect uh, of this, the pro- political perspective. Uh, I, I felt that there was enough to share, and again, I thought that the way to tell this movie that celebrates our generosity and our uh, uh, need to do more and to give more uh, had to be reflected in in, in the movie itself. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, I don't own this story. Mm-hmm. I don't own, this is not, but uh, this is a, um, it, it's been a very interesting process because uh, I was worried that I would get it wrong, uh, that homeless advocacy groups would be critical. Uh, and yet, and librarians, of course, we talked about earlier, but the fact that they've all embraced it, that they've all seen themselves on screen, uh, the film is it celebrates mit- misfits and outcasts and mm-hmm. marginalized, and they're all seeing themselves empowered 
on screen. And so, um, again, I'm not sure if I answered the question directly. If oh, no, I, I did. A, I, I think a, you're I think, you, I think yeah. for sure. I think for sure. Thirteen years, though, to tell that story. I'm sure the film has developed quite oh, has. a bit it has. since it's. Yeah. You know, so. How did you shape it over those 13 years? How did it change your perspective? It, it was a much darker movie, the, mm-hmm. the or story in, in uh, initially, and so over time, uh, I, I, you know, my dad's been arrested 66 times for nonviolent uh, mm-hmm. civil disobedience, and the issues that he has been uh, jailed for uh, have been anti-nuclear protests, uh, 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 immigration. And, and homelessness issues. Uh, and I would watch him get taken away on the evening news, sometimes the national news, and he looked like a raving lunatic. <laughs> and he'd be reciting the Lord's prayers. He was cuffed, and, and I'd sit there with my mom and think, wow, what's he doing? I, I understood it fundamentally, but I didn't understand it on a spiritual level until I started spending time with this film. <laughs> and, and his arrest ultimately started as a initially as a as as a source of embarrassment mm. now became a source of pride and and his arrest informed certainly the second half of the film uh, that is um, that is my father's spirit in action on screen that you're seeing mm. um, so I'm, I'm I, I owe him a debt of gratitude uh, because I think the other version to your question, would have been a much darker, uh, much more diabolical, much more cynical movie. And yeah, I think that's, that that's we don't weird. have uh, we, we don't have time to be cynical. We don't we we're in a we're in a we're at a very critical uh, place in our in our history. And um, uh, I I would like to say that there is and you know you hear politicians say it all the time that there is more that unites us than divides us, but. And I want to believe that because I'm a, I'm a prisoner of hope. I'm not an optimist. Mm-hmm. I'm a prisoner of hope, as Dr. King said. Uh, <laughs> but I want to believe that. And, I, and it's getting harder and harder every day to, to embrace that. More and, more and more cynicism seems like such a, such a self-indulgent activity almost. It, it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't build anything. No. But also there's the Jenna Malone character who is a representation of the kind of like... Uh, fashion activism. That's right. Where <laughs> you buy the she, right? Yeah, yeah couchtivist. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But she gets woke by the end. She finds she discovers what what service looks like, and she has that moment of where she wakes up. She says, "Okay, this is bigger than me. This is bigger than just a meme or a Facebook post." Or, but I'm sorry, I cut you off. You're. Oh no! I just that one of the other beautiful juxtapositions I saw in the movie was the presentation of information. So you have the presentation of information within the public library that's so rich. And then there's the presentation of the information in the media and how that is diabolical and and a tool. Um, can you speak to how, how you tried to balance those two ideas a little bit? Well, cer- certainly from when I started working on this to where we are now in terms of the media where everything is breaking news. <laughs> we had a situation a couple weeks, maybe 10 days ago in Los Angeles where in, in a very crowded, very uh, high-end mall in, in the Century City area, uh, it was we went from active shooter to suspicious package to nothing at all over the course of three hours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was, every channel had stopped. Every, it was all breaking news. It was all spun 
for as as sensationalism, uh, as sensationalism and and uh, click clickbait. Mm-hmm. That's where we are, un- unfortunately. So what what has happened, I believe, is that if you are always at DefCon Five. Uh, or or one, I should say. DEFCON 1 is where we're, where we're minutes away from. Yeah. From, yeah. So we're, we're always at DEFCON 1. Uh, at what point do we uh, are we allowed to let our guard down? And maybe they don't want us to ever let our guard down. Maybe we're supposed to stay at this heightened level, of, and which is why there's so many uh, uh, pharmaceutical medications out there yeah. that are that are that are people are using to to calm down. Hmm. Uh, but but the media is complicit and. You know that's why I, I I love democracy now. I love uh, Amy Goodman. I, I love free speech TV. I, I I love not being shouted at by uh, pharmaceutical companies about the, mm. the things in my body that no longer work, which work fine. <laughs> but um, but so I'm I'm, I'm I, I wanted to, and again there have been so, there have been several uh, uh, criticisms about how the media is portrayed in the film. Um, by and, the media, maybe. <laughs> exactly, and um, I just say, you know, if 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 that offends you, uh, then good, because it is accurate. It's not overblown. It's not. I don't believe it's hyperbole uh, in in the context of this movie or in the context of our lives right now. Frankly. No, but I mean that's people down to a nutshell, right? Is is they're, they get focused on themselves? I mean that's that's a human trait, not just a, me- a media trait. That's right. Well, Emilio, we could talk to you all day about the public. We really Thank enjoyed you. it. Thank and, you so much. Uh, but we got to get you to a screening and a Q&A. I'm going to do the Q&A. So yeah. we're excited for that yeah. as well. So Thank, Thank you. you so much for you so joining much. us on the podcast. It's my pleasure to be here, and thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Love Take it. care. And there you have it, our conversation with Emilio Estevez. Wild. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> I am really proud that we did not fawn over him you know, with our praise of, Repo Man, The Breakfast Club, Men at Work, The Mighty Ducks. Right. Growing up, he was only the Mighty Ducks guy for me. Yeah. Even so, the Brat Pack stuff I didn't see until I was an adult. So we're mature professionals, Lisa. <laughs> uh, and we withheld our fanboying, fangirling. Uh, yeah. but Well, you know, like, here's the thing. You know, it's obvious that he's incredibly passionate about the public. He's doing a grassroots campaign with this film, taking the movie from theater to theater. Library to library. Library to library meeting the people who are going to appreciate this film the most. And I want to respect that because guess, guess what? It, it, it's inspirational. Absolutely. He used his time in Winchester to really get to know the community. Shepherded by Andy Garrison, he went to the Henley Public Library, the public library that serves the Winchester community. And he had a really nice chat with Brandon Thomas, who is the head of the Winchester Rescue Mission, which is the homeless shelter in Winchester. Yeah, so Emilio's the real deal. And The Public is an incredibly earnest film. And in this time of political chaos and unrest, it's nice to have a film that both addresses the issues of the day and still is uplifting and optimistic. Right, so get to your theater, watch the public, mm-hmm. check your local listings, yeah. hunt down VOD on demand, all that jazz, and watch this movie. We recommend it. Now, next week, we will return with another Lost Week in 11 conversation. We are speaking to filmmaker A.T. White, a.k.a. Al White, about his new film, Starfish, which is a science fiction, fantasy, drama, 
relationship movie. It's a lot of things, just like the public. It's a massive mashup of genres. uh, And wow, it rocked that audience at Lost Weekend. Uh, So yes, come back next week. Listen to our extra long chat with Al White. And, you know, we get into it. Everything about his movie, plus uh, we debate what's going to happen in Avengers Endgame. Yes, (laughs) we go there. You get to listen to people become besties in real time. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So there you go, folks. Um, Lisa, where can our listeners find you online? You can always find me at Sidewalk Siren on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow Billy Das at WB Das on Instagram and Twitter. You can follow our other dorks who weren't on this episode, Brian Young at the Turtle Dork, Darren Smith at the Disco Dork, and you can follow me on all social medias at Mouth Dork. And until next time, guys, take care. Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams 